Uh, well, good morning. Kevin, thank you for leading us in prayer. Greg, thank you for leading us uh, in song and uh, worship. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Good to see you guys. Uh, thank you for making your way here. Uh, and those online, thank you for joining in, watching us online as well. Um, it's good to be back with you. It's been a couple of weeks since I've been here. Two weeks ago, uh, those who were here enjoyed Scott Feather, who's the pastor of Gateway Church, while I spoke at Gateway. And so that was fun for us. I hope a good time for you guys as well. Last week, I just want to say thank you here publicly to Devin Clemmer, who's over here. I'm not going to point out Devin particularly over here in the like pink shirt um, sitting fourth in from about the fifth row. But Devin did a tremendous job last week. Uh, I'm really grateful for him. And um, you should know that this is Devin's last Sunday with us for a little while because he's taking a role as an intern at Andrews Bridge Christian Fellowship, um, a fellow uh, church in our alliance, uh, pastored now by Scott Phillips, who some of you know who's a friend of Grace Point and used to be an elder here at GPC. So I'm working to get Devin fired from that role so he can be back here with us. But can we just say thank you to Devin for his time with us last week and wishing you the best going forward, Devin. So that is our, a little bit of our love to you. If you see him today, give him a little bit of uh, just extra care and love on your way over to Andrews Bridge. We fully support you, Devin. Excited for where God will lead you. Uh, all right, well, uh, this morning we're starting a brand new series called Doing Good. And in order to start that series, I wanted to take you back to um, my childhood. And I know everyone loves to travel back in time. So here we go. I'm going to take you to the side of the road right here. You are now in Barbados, all right? This is where I grew up. What you are noticing, if you're an observant person, you're seeing a lot of things, trying to translate it immediately. I want to talk about the bus in the background, all right? The big blue bus. There are three levels of buses in Barbados. Um, the big blue bus is a safe bus for people um, who are not, maybe didn't grow up in the island. Then there's a shorter yellow bus, which is often playing uh, calypso music, reggae music, kind of rolling down the road, has funny little horns on it. And then there's little minivan buses in which it seats 12 and there's 36 people in the bus hanging out and doing all kinds of things with seriously pumping subwoofers and loud stuff and just a party in a bus going by. If you don't want all that and just want to get somewhere, you take the boring old blue bus. Okay. Now, you'll also notice it says bus stop to city. You see that little post? It says bus stop. You may not be able to read the words, but in there it says bus stop to city. And then just for clarity, bus stop like out of city or away from city. Those are the only two bus stop signs, seriously, in the entire island. You have to figure out where you want to go to or from city. That's, that's all that they have. One day, and I don't remember why. I really don't because we had cars in our family. But anyway, one day, my mom and I were on a bus. It was weird. A blue bus, just like this. And I think, I could be wrong, we, either, we had to go downtown, I think, so we got a bus stop to city. I thought we had to, anyway, I can't remember we went to the doctor or the store, but whatever. We're sitting on this bus, it's relatively full, um, and in walks an elderly lady. Now, that's fine, but my mom looks over to me and she's like, why don't you give up your seat? And I'm like, why don't you give up your seat? Like, why do I have to give up my seat? I was here first. And this was the first time as a young boy in Barbados that I had this uh, principle taught to me, and I remember it still vividly. To this day, when I'm on a bus, even if I'm the only one on a bus, which I'm rarely on a bus, but even if I'm the only one and someone else gets on, I'm like, do you want my seat? <laughs> I know there's 35 others, but do you want my seat? Because I'll gladly get up. And I learned in that moment from my mom, like, the idea that, you know, giving up your seat for someone like that is the appropriate, and if I can say it this way, good thing to do. Now, I might ask, like, and you might be asking, okay, if you're doing a series called Doing Good, like, 
how much do we really need to talk about the things that we all know that we already should do? Like, we know we should give up our seat on the bus to the elderly lady when she walks in. We also know how to play, say please and thank you. I think you've learned how to say that. I think many of you actually learned how to hold doors for people too, right? I think many of you learned that you should clear your spot after you're done sitting there at dinner before you just get up and run off. I think you've learned how to wait your turn in talking. Like, there's a lot of good things that we do that we've learned how to do. And so why is it that we need to sit and listen for what will be five weeks on a series called Doing Good. Well, I hope to convince you of two things and to give you a third thing. Now, you get to decide whether it's worth listening to or not. I hope to give you, convince you of two things and give you a third. Here's the first thing I hope to convince you of, that doing good, far from being an optional add-on to our personal salvation, is an essential call of God for all who call themselves Christian. That doing good far from being an optional add-on to our personal salvation. This means sometimes we have a view that once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that the primary purpose has been accomplished. I now have a future in heaven. I am personally saved and going to heaven. I'm on my way. Oh, and every now and then give up your seat for someone on the bus and every now and then hold the door and kind of do some good things. But primarily, I'm on my way. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, some of you have that memorized. Paul is writing there. He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. He goes on to say, this is a gift of God. He said, not by works, lest any of you should boast. And then he says in Ephesians 2, 10, this. He says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, our salvation, if you call yourself a Christian, our salvation has as its very intent goodness or good works to be done. This is built on a strong theology of Old Testament, of full biblical framework, which I want to give you in a minute. So this is coming from a deep place in the scriptures, this idea of doing good. Far from being an add-on, that well, it would be nice to do more, is actually an essential call of God for anyone who says, I, yep, I call myself a Christian. That's what the first thing I want to try to convince you of. The second thing I want to try to convince you of, I'm just going to quote Tim Keller on this one because what he's saying is what I hope that we can be convinced of at some point here. He says this, there's a direct relationship between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace and his or her heart for justice and the poor. There is a direct relationship between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace and his or her heart for justice and the poor. What's he trying to say? What he's trying to say is, if you've ever met someone who has walked through the same pain as you have, you immediately feel a connection with them. Why? Because they have suffered like you. People who have walked through cancer together will meet someone else who's walked through that, and immediately there's a bond. Why? Because they get it. They feel it. Sometimes you don't have words for what you're trying to deal with, but when you meet someone else who's gone through it, the loss of a loved one. The, the, the loss of a dream, you've lost a job, whatever it might be, when you find someone else who's been through what you've been through, particularly a pain point, there is a place of deep empathy. What Keller is trying to make the case for is that the more that we understand, the more we come to terms with, grasp and experience what we have been saved from, the more prone and apt we are to increase our heart for justice and the poor. We will increase our compassion and so it also serves to remind us, if this is true, that the more cool I feel toward justice and the poor, potentially the more cool I feel toward what God's grace has really done for me. 
And so this is what I want to try to convince you of, that the greater our grasp and experience of God's grace, the greater our heart for justice and the poor. There's something I want to give to you here. Well, I'm going to give that to you in a second. Um, While I'm on Tim Keller, I want to make this comment. This book, can everybody see this book? (laughs) No, you can't. You can see that I have a book, hopefully. He wrote a book called Generous Justice. And I want to say from the beginning, this framework in this book has been very helpful and is informing the entire work of this series. I want to give credit where credit is due. And if you find anything interesting and want to read more, there's a ton in here. Generous Justice, subtitle is How God's Grace Makes Us Just. It's a call back to the gospel and how the gospel's grace makes us just. All right? So with that being said, I want to give you, here's what I want to give you. I want to give you a robust biblical framework for doing good. A robust biblical framework for doing good. Some of you may or may not know that here at Grace Point, we talk about our vision this way. We say we want to be a transforming presence in the town square. And we go on to say this way, in what way? How will we do that? We say we want to pursue the social, spiritual, and cultural good. Now, it's kind of a, I, I say it quickly because I'm used to it. Meaning we want, to, we want to pursue how people relate to people, how they relate to God, and how they relate to the systems around them, economic, education, housing, transportation systems, and all that. Why, as a church, do we verbalize that? Why is it that we do that? I don't know that I've ever given to you as a church body the, a, a more robust biblical framework than I hope to give in the next several weeks to, to solidify and maybe strengthen why is it that I want to have, and I think as a collective, we want to have a kind of expression of Christian faith that cares for the poor and the most vulnerable, that is driven from a comprehensive biblical framework. And so I hope to give to you something that in the next several weeks you will feel Um, strengthened in your own faith, maybe clarity in even how we come to what we come to and why it is that we express ourselves the way that we express ourselves here in this community. Now, with that being said, all right, with that being said, I want to ask this question today. Here's where I want to go today. What does it even mean to do good? So this morning, I just want to ask this question. What does it mean to do good? What does it mean to do good? I hope to give you an answer. I hope to talk about four things. I hope to ask three questions at the end, and then you get to decide if any of that was worth your time. But here we go. What does it mean to do good? Now, one might say, well, that's pretty simple, right? I mean, hold the doors, let the ladies sit on the bus, you know, please and thank you, you know, whatever you want to do. Now, let's push into that just a little bit, because doing good, you know, once we start talking about it, it's complicated and it's confusing. Now, don't answer this question out loud and don't raise your hand, but is it good, is it good that many of the college graduates in our country are being forgiven $10,000 in their debt? Don't answer the question. Don't answer the question. I'm I'm not trying to poke a political piece for the fun of it, but I'm, I'm raising up the question, the issue of it is confusing what one group thinks is doing good, another group can think that's doing bad or doing injustice. No, it's not right. Yes, it is right. No, it isn't. Yes, is it good? Is it not good? Hmm, I'm not sure. Don't worry, it's not just our current political landscape. Years ago, people were asked the same question about should women have the right to vote? Was that doing good? Was that not doing good? If we were in that moment, there would have been people on either side of that that said, no way, is that doing good? I would say, absolutely, that's doing good. I'm really glad that the doing good won on that one, by the way. It's not just politics. I'm not just trying to push on politics. Are you doing good when you see someone who's homeless is it doing good to go buy them or to give them the dollars that they're looking for? 
Do you take them to the homeless shelter? Or do you give them a buck or two or five or ten? Or do you, do you take them to a restaurant? What's doing good in that situation when you see people like that? What is it? Do I turn the music up, hope that people don't see me, get on the phone quick, I ignore them? What is doing good in your business? When you talk about profit margin, you talk about how you pay your employees, what fees you pass on to your customers, how do you know that you're doing good, not just donating now and then to a charitable cause, but what does it mean to actually do good from a business standpoint? And to allow that framework of a biblical framework of doing good, what that means for you if you're a Christian business owner, what does that mean to lead a business so that you can employ some of the principles that God has given us from the Old and into the New Testament in and through your business? What does it mean as a grandparent to do good? As a parent to teach your kids how to do good? What does it mean? Because one person's good might be another person's bad or not so good. Now here's what I also know. That sometimes we think if we don't get clarity on this, if we don't get clarity on what doing good means, we will do what we know to do. But that's about it. I will do, and maybe you will do, what's been handed down to you from your parents, from your grandparents. You know, I will open doors, I will get up from the bus seat, I will, you know, say please and thank you, and hopefully you will do some of those same things too. But if all that I do is what I know, sometimes what I know isn't good enough. Years ago, in this country, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, there had not yet been data that we could um, reveal that showed the connection between smoking and lung cancer. And so believe it or not, years ago, we would see advertisements like this in the U.S. Physicians, 20,679 physicians say luckies are less irritating. It's toasted. Doctors promoting cigarette smoking. Why? Because we didn't have the data yet that the doctors could say, well, actually, it's wrong. In fact, what the um, cigarette companies would say to the doctors is, listen, everyone's going to smoke anyway, so why don't you help us sell the healthiest version of this that we have? And so 20,679 physicians say luckies are the best ones. Let's zoom in on this a little bit because hopefully you can see this better. You may not be able to tell, but on the very tippy top, there's no way you can tell because I'm having a hard time reading it here. But the 20,679, there's an asterisk on it, and it leads to the top super small letters on the very tippy-top left of the screen. This data, it says, was checked and certified by Librand, Ross Brothers, and Montgomery Associates and Auditors. All right, so we're talking about people tracking the data, finding the data. And then the bottom, it says, your throat protection against irritation and against cough. Isn't that great? And this is why, evidently, everyone should smoke Luckies. Well, why don't you smoke Luckies? Well, number one, I guess they're not around anymore. What do I know? But why don't you? Because now you know. What physician would now stand behind promoting cigarettes? None of them, because now they know. So all that I'm saying is sometimes when we don't know what something means, sometimes not knowing, sometimes doing what I know to do isn't enough. Just not enough. And so what I want to give to you is I want to give to you an increased portion of knowledge of what do the scriptures give to us to know about God's heart for justice and the poor. Because if all that I do is what's been handed to me and I just do what I know, sometimes what I know isn't enough. It's not your fault. It just is we don't know enough yet. And so I hope in this series that you will come to see a greater knowledge and then greater application of what it means to do good. Now, with that being said, let me go forward here, all right? What is doing good? I want to suggest four things, four things in particular this morning. First of all, doing good, I want to try to make the case that flows from God's character, flows from God's character. 
Um, you, we will see passages in the scripture 100 to 1 that say, that say basically that um, God is a defender of the poor. We never read that God is a defender of the rich. Doesn't that just even sound off? We're reading almost 100 to 1 that God is a defender of the poor over and over and over again. In fact, we read it this way in Psalm 146, 7 to 9. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. This is what the Lord does. This is what God himself does. Now, this may seem normal to you if you've grown up in the church area, but I want you to understand there's a Sri Lankan scholar. I'm going to probably get his name wrong in terms of pronunciation. Vinith Ramakandra. Sorry. He basically wrote this, that in all cultures of the world, the ancient world, the way that the gods were interpreted to the people is that the gods were interpreted through kings and emperors and people with authority, the elite. And so this is why it was such a big deal to oppose the emperor, to oppose the king, to oppose the ruling class, because through them, God would speak. For the Israelites, God gave a completely rival vision of who he was to the people. He's like, I'm not first of all a God of your kings and a God of your emperors and a God of your rulers. Listen to how God describes himself in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. It's as if God shows up on the scene in the ancient Near East and he's like, I know you're used to gods who introduce themselves with power and authority. I'm the God who defends the fatherless and the widow. No gods were doing that. That doesn't have a place in history except for the Christian God, except for the God of the Bible, except for Yahweh. This is how he introduces himself in the room. This is who I am. I'm the one who does these kinds of things. I'd argue that God defends the poor because injustice is unequally distributed, meaning the poor and vulnerable tend to get the lion's share of injustice on them compared to the, the rich and powerful. A couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to speak with District Judge, uh, Magisterial Justice Ray Scheller in this community. I was in Judge Scheller's uh, courtroom uh, on a personal visit. <laughs> Trust me. Um, and I asked him, I'm like, can you tell me what are some things you see in this community? The number one thing he talked about was the rent problem. All right, and I'm, I'm not used to this as I don't live in this world. He said, I can't tell you how many tenants have come before me because their landlords are trying to get rent money from them. And they, the landlord comes to him. The tenants never come to him. They don't think they would ever have a voice. But the landlords come to get rent money, and then the, the tenants are saying, we are living in squalor. Why, do I, why should I pay for this? And they show me pictures of the house. And he said, as a human, right, he said, like, I, I agree with them. Like the places that some of these landlords have our people in this township, in Paradise Township and uh, living, not just Paradise Township, is squalor. He said, but as a judge, one to adjudicate the law, all that I can do is look at this case through the eyes of the law. But what he knows as a human being is more needs to be done for tenants' rights in this community. Why? Because the poor get the lion's share of injustice forced upon them because they simply don't have the mechanism or the means or the, the wherewithal, not the wherewithal, that's the wrong word, uh, scratch it if I can. They don't have the opportunity, the resources 
to engage with the world and the power structures that are. So why does God come behind the powerless? Why? He defends because they get a lion's share of injustice put on them. So first of all, doing good flows from God's character. Second of all, this is where we go. Second of all, doing good means justice for the vulnerable. What does that mean? Justice for the vulnerable. It means treating people equitably. Um, this has more of a legal connotation, but treating people equitably so that whoever is renting, that the conditions under which they're living in our area would be the kind of conditions that I wouldn't want my children living under and you would be comfortable with your children living under. The kind of codes and administrative rules that they, tenants or the landlords come under would be the same thing that you would love to see your family thriving in that there's a justice, a kind of justice that we have for the, for the vulnerable. Uh, many of you are familiar with Micah 6, 8, and here we see this. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Acting justly is the action, having a lot to do with what is uh, treating people equitably. And to love mercy is the attitude of grace and kindness and, and forgiveness. Almost as if Judge Scheller is saying, I need to act justly, but in my mercy, I want to do more. He didn't use those terms. I'm, putting, I'm saying that. But it's this, the mercy is the attitude. Justice is the action. It's about giving people their equal rights. And why does that matter? Because I'm convinced that how we treat the most vulnerable is a marker of the health of our society. In Zechariah 7, verses 9 and 10, here's what we read. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice and show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not, and then look at the last phrase here, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. This is what in the Old Testament scholars call the quartet of the poor. Widow, fatherless, foreigner, and the poor. All right, this is what we talk about that way. In our world today, we may not use this terminology all the time. In fact, we don't ever say, oh, they're fatherless. We, we might, but we'll talk about single parents. Right? We talk about single parents. Uh, in our world today, we talk about the homeless. We talk about elderly. We talk about those who are disabled. We talk about the refugee. These are the people that in the Old Testament in particular, God is saying, these are the people who I, who I want justice for. And if we don't provide justice for these, this impacts the health of the entire society. This is coming from the heart of God, okay? Now, I want to transition to this. Not only is doing good flowing from the heart of God, not only does it require and involve justice for the vulnerable, it also has to do with this, and this may be a new way for you to think about it. I don't know how, I'd love to emphasize this as much as I possibly can in the, just a couple moments I'm on it. Doing good also means right relationship with the vulnerable, right relationship with the vulnerable. Doing good isn't just about making sure that uh, policies, systems, public policy is in place or that the legal um, system is set up to take care of the poor, which is a good and righteous thing to do. But it also has to do with what, in what way do I relate as a peer and fellow human being with the people who live right in my community. I don't have time this morning to go into Job chapter 31, but Job 31 is a passage of scripture that I would encourage you to look at. It served as like a template in the Old Testament in particular. Uh, and for the people of, of Israel. It served as a template in showing how Job interacted with people who were vulnerable in his community. And what it became is it became a, a text of scripture that the Israelites would look at and say, this is the way that we should be treating the people around us, almost like a chapter of folklore in a way. And in the middle of it, just in a couple of verses, here's how Job describes what's going on for him. And this is why it was so important for the Israelites. In Job 31, he begins this way. It's, it, my section begins this way. He says, if I have denied the desires of the poor 
or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless. He will go on to say, if I have done that, that would be sin. That would be sin, and God should judge me for it. In fact, my arm should fall off. He starts talking about kind of pain that he should go through. Yeah, like he should, should ruin me if I did that. But, he says, but from my youth, look at how he describes himself. I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow. And here's what the nation of Israel picks up. That Job's view of those who are most vulnerable in his community is the same view that a loving father has for his children. You look around, and if there's anything in you that has a fatherly instinct, that wants to protect people who are being harmed, that wants to step in where someone is being abused, that wants to engage and rise up in you and find a purpose and cause because those people are being persecuted in a way they shouldn't be. That fatherly tone, that's what Job is saying. And this is why the nation of Israel raised this text up and said, yeah, as a follower of Yahweh, we should not just be concerned about equitable justice from a systems level, like good policies, we should be, but also from a relational level. That those who are most vulnerable should feel like those with power treat them like a loving father does that draws them in and cares and protects, not pandering, no, no, not at all, empowering, strengthening, loving, serving. And this is what Job does. This is a, he says, I reared them as a father would. This is how I looked at them. Those who were most poor in my community, the eyes of the widow, then they grew weary, I guided them. I took them by the hand. <laughs> I walked with them. I had a relationship with, I had a right relationship with them. This is so important to me, and this is where I love the way Tim Keller writes it in Genesis Justice. He puts it this way, that Job, he is not content to give them small perfunctory gifts and the assumption that their misery and weakness are a permanent condition. It's not like you're sitting around like, yeah, that stinks to be a widow and fatherless, but don't worry. I'll give you a thousand bucks at the end of the year. It'll be a tax write-off for me, but it'll be fine. Then you'll get a thousand bucks. It should help you with rent payment for a little bit. It might help you with oil too. No, you're struggling with oil. You are welcome. It's been fun. No, 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 no. Job isn't concerned, and God isn't concerned with small perfunctory or like little token gifts in the assumption that, oh, they're always going to struggle with rent. They're always going to struggle with heating oil. They're always going to struggle. So, hey, what more do you want me to do? Again, if all that you have experienced is engaging our most vulnerable in that way, that may be all that you know how to do or know what to do. But sometimes what we know isn't enough. This is where the scriptures engage us and challenge us. They say, wait, wait, if you're going to call yourself Christian, come back to where does this flow from the character of God, God's heart for justice for the vulnerable, what is right and equitable, and also this fatherly or right relationship with those who are walking through poverty, moments of vulnerability, seasons of struggle. All right, so three things so far we've said. Doing good flows from God's character, involves justice for the vulnerable, and right relationship with the vulnerable. And finally, is also generous or includes generosity for, toward the vulnerable. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about um, people giving their acts of righteousness to the poor. Um, giving is, being, is put in that category. Job talks about this the same way, all that he would give to people. I don't have time to get into all of them this morning, but Ezekiel puts it this way. I just want to highlight it here. Ezekiel says, 
He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. Why do I put that up there? Because of the opening phrase. He says, he does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. In other words, if the people of Israel were to withhold their generous gifts to the poor, they would be robbing them, is what he's saying. It's going to be robbing. This is going to be robbing our most vulnerable if we are not generous in our gifts, in our engagement, in our lending at no interest, in not taking a profit, in providing these things. If we are not generous in that, we, Ezekiel will say, nation of Israel, then consider yourself robbing from them what God would want you to give to them. So, to review... This has been fun, huh? To review, doing good, make the case, trying to make the case, it flows from God's character. He introduces himself in the room as the one who's the God of the fatherless, not the God of the wealthy. It involves justice, equity, pursuit of that for the vulnerable, right relationship with the vulnerable, and generosity toward the vulnerable. To put it in a sentence, it's a long sentence. I dare you to memorize it because I'm not sure it's going to stick, but if you have a better way to say this, please let me know. Doing good. Doing good, here's my definition for this morning. Doing good is generous action flowing from God's character that pursues both justice for and right relationship with the most vulnerable. What does it mean to do good? That was the question I asked this morning. What does it mean to do good? It's not just giving up my seat to the lady on the bus. I'll do that. It's not just holding the door for you. Hopefully, I'll do that. Not just saying please and thank you. Hopefully, I'll do that. It's not just a $1,000 donation to something. Hopefully, I'll do that. Doing good is generous action flowing from God's character, rooted and anchored to the God of the Bible, that pursues both justice for the poor, justice for and right relationship with the most vulnerable. We are working for and working with those in our community who need the kind of fatherly care, loving care that we need. This is what I see when I survey scripture. So what can we do with this, all right? Regarding the most vulnerable, three questions. In what ways, I'm gonna poke a little bit on this, don't take it personally, Unless, anyway, not, this is not a personal attack. In what ways am I involved in justice? If you want to reflect on this yourself, uh, here's three questions to ask. The first is this, in what ways am I involved in justice right now? You may say, well, I'm not involved in justice. Like, I just go to work on Monday. Like, what do you mean am I involved in justice? Let me put it this way. What do you see around you? Do you, do you see it? Do you even see it? Do you see the children of the coworkers that you're with? Are they reading like your kids are? Do you think it's right? I mean, do you see the inequities that happen? The data will tell us the, the significant differentiation between children who enter kindergarten in poverty, middle class versus upper class. That generational poverty skews toward the poor. Why? In part, not in totality, but in part, early season of their life they're not equipped with or given the same tools that those in middle class are. Do you, do you see it? Do you see it around you? Do you see the single mom around you wrestling to try to make things meet? Do you see it? Do you see the people, the tenants who live near you, up and down Route 30 or wherever it might be where you live? Do you see their pain? Do you see what they're trying to wrestle with and fight with? Do you see the inequities in education and transportation and rural transportation? Do you see the pain of people who need to get to doctor's appointments but can't because they don't have a ride? Do you see the pain of inflation that hits you and hits me right now, too? 
but it hits different when you're senior on fixed income. Do you feel that? Do you see it? All I'm asking you is, do you see it? Am I involved in justice? In other words, don't let it pass by. If all you know is that the way I care for the poor is I give to the church and you know, every now and then give 50 bucks or something else, I understand why you do it that way. I'm just saying, I think there's more. Do you see it around you? In what ways am I involved in justice? At least am I learning to see it? Second is this, in what way am I building relationships with the most vulnerable? Not just <laughs> numbers or people to look, you know, people who are different than me, but in what ways am I actually in a peer level, not unlike Job saying, as a father who loves and cares for people around me, and what way am I relating and building relationships with the people around me, inviting them in? Many of us, and here's one of the struggles of being in a, um, a more rural community with longer uh, lasting friendships, sometimes we don't feel like we have room in our friendship groups for more people, and I understand that, but I've heard that from quite a few people over the years, is this can be a hard community to break into. This is not Grace Point specific. Not Grace Point specific. Not Grace Point specific. In our community, it can be hard to break in because many already have a strong web of relationships. But those who are on the outside and most vulnerable, as a Christian, we might need to at least ask, Am I built, do I have room in my relational network for those who are most vulnerable in this community? Am I building those relationships? Third is this, am I being generous? Am I being generous? with what I give and how I give to those who are most vulnerable. If you want to get underneath things a little bit, I want to encourage you to ask that. In what ways am I seeing or involved in justice, building relationships, or being generous? Now, with that being said, all right, that being said, take a breath for a minute. Good, some of you did, appreciate that. No one is going to change because of information. Okay? I am under no delusion that information really transforms us. It's not enough. I could give you data up here forever and ever and ever. I could quote 1,600 more Bible verses up here if we wanted to. But that isn't really what moves you. And I know that. I think you know that. Fundamentally, I think sometimes for me, I'm just going to share me, I lose sight of the fact that, that I, I was homeless before I met God. I had no place to find peace and rest before God. Did you? I was illiterate before I met God. Not able to read the language of grace and mercy. Could you? I was before a judge in a courtroom, weak and without defense because what was against me was the weight of my sin and failure and I was poor in my ability to defend myself. But all of a sudden, the judge stepped in for me when I was in my most vulnerable. And I don't know what you think of your condition. I don't know if you've revisited your condition recently, before you came to faith in Christ. But maybe like me, you too were homeless, without a real place to rest your soul. Maybe you were illiterate too. Maybe you were in poverty of soul, and maybe the weight of law was coming against you too, because it's from that place when I go back and remember what God has done for me in Christ, when I take a moment to breathe and reflect, like, I was there. That changes me, and that softens me, and I hope, I hope it can soften us.
to make room to see and to make room to invite in relationship. People right around us who need that support. This morning, what we're going to do in a minute is we're going to take communion. And part of the reason we're doing that is communion is a tremendous act of generosity from God, who, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God sent Christ in our condition of homelessness, of poverty, of loss, of sin, of failure, of expecting judgment, and came in. And in that space, Christ redeemed us or bought us. And so what we're about to take with the bread and the cup is a beautiful, tangible reminder of God's gift of grace to me. And so the more, if it's true, that the more that I've come to grips with and experience God's grace, then the greater my heart will be for justice and the poor. Then communion is a good starting point again to say, let me just take a minute in the busyness of all that we do. Let me take a minute to remember what really has been done for me. In a moment, I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward to to pass out the elements, as we call them, the bread and the cup. The way we do it here at Grace Point is um, we will distribute the elements, and if you're willing to, would you hold them until all have been served? And at the end uh, of that time, uh, Pastor Greg will come and lead us in taking them together. You do not need to be a member of Grace Point Church to take communion with us here this morning. Uh, the bread that you're about to take represents the body of Christ on the cross. The blood, repre- the, the blood, the the cup represents His blood shed for us. And so, this is a tangible reminder of what Christ has done for us. We're going to play a song during this time called from Lauren Daigle called "Love Like This." I want to encourage you to allow the lyrics to sit in your heart for a minute. Um, she will re- sing um, about what what have I done? What have I done to deserve? A love like this. What have I done to deserve a love like this? She says in there, I cannot earn what you so freely give. What have I done to deserve a love like this? And so as we receive the elements, I pray that the words from the song will minister to you, will soften your own heart and help you remember from where to you came and from where I came. Will you pray with me as we begin to take communion? Father, thank you for the time to be here this morning. I pray that you would remind us in this moment we're about to share that you're a kind and gracious God who has given us freedom, release from our own bondage, hope when we've been hopeless. You've given us a home from where we have been homeless. You've allowed us this tremendous mercy and experience of your grace. And so I pray that you would soften us even as we take communion. Thank you for the gift of salvation and the gift of Jesus. And we pray that these moments we share now can be a reminder for us, an encourager for us of what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Ushers, we can come forward and we can serve here together.